Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the study of antiquity and the Middle Ages. As always, I'm your host, Nick Barksdale, and today I'm bringing you a very special episode by a phenomenal guest, and that is Dr. Andrew Latham. Today's episode is interesting, and it may move beyond the traditional outlooks and approaches to history. When we think of the factors that shape history as we know it, we often think of unforgiving and brutal battlefields political assassinations, politics, and intrigue in imperial courts. But one thing that in many cases gets overlooked is a much more natural factor in the shaping and making of history, and that is disease. Disease shaped the ancient world, the medieval world, and even created the foundations of our modern world today. And in this lecture. Dr. Andrew Latham is going to take us on a journey from plague in the ancient world to the great pestilence of the Black Death in the medieval world to COVID today. And we will leave off with some words of wisdom about the future and what it may hold, not only for us, but in future history books on this very subject. And so without further ado, Dr. Latham, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you, Nick, for that uh, very gracious introduction, and it's good to be back and to see you again. Um, so, as you mentioned, today uh, my talk will be on plagues and pandemics and politics. And specifically, I'd like to entitle this, if I might be so presumptuous, as From Antiquity to Modernity and Three Easy Plagues. And the upshot of my talk will be on the way in which diseases, epidemic, pandemics, plagues, pestilences have transformed Western civilization, beginning in late antiquity, um, but proceeding right through until the birth of the modern era. So covering two of your favorite periods, Nick, on the one hand, antiquity, on the other hand, the medieval. I think it's safe to say that before March of this year, few people gave much thought to disease as, as a significant driver of human history. Uh, obviously, many people have been personally afflicted with one disease or another, and for them, disease looms large as a shaper of their personal lives. And some disease outbreaks have generated a certain kind of media hype and they briefly burst into our collective consciousness, but then disappeared just as quickly. Think, for example, of mad cow disease. Who even remembers it? And of course, some diseases like polio loom large in the collective imaginations of people of a certain age. But few have treated disease in the way, say, Karl Marx thought of changes in the mode of production. That is, as the primary driver of historical change and the principal engine of world order transformation. This, I would suggest, is about to change. Given all the transformations wrought and about to be wrought by COVID, I think it's safe to say that we are going to be paying a lot more attention to the way in which disease shapes uh, human history. In this spirit, let me propose the following thesis. Ultimately, at the deepest level, it is the microbial mode of reproduction rather than the Marxist mode of production that drives human history. That sounds bold and that sounds complicated, but it's really quite straightforward. So let me illustrate this thesis 
with the following snapshots of three plagues that shaped the ancient world, shaped the medieval world, and in fact, gave birth to the modern world. And then, time permitting, I'll conclude with some thoughts on how the current pandemic shapes up against some of those historical pandemics. In other words, what lessons can we draw from our study of the ancient world and the medieval world through the lens of this microbial mode of reproduction? Let me begin with the Antonine Plague and the birth of the Christian West. Now, as many of you will know, the Antonine Plague is not the first one to have entered the Western consciousness. That honor goes to the Plague of Athens, which is described in hor horrific detail in Thucydides' classic, The Peloponnesian War. But the Antonine Plague is important because it marks the birth of the West as a Christian civilization. Now, it was also known as the Plague of Galen after the physician who so meticulously described it. Uh, and this pandemic, now widely thought to be a strain of smallpox, although we're never quite sure about these historical uh, pandemics, what the actual disease was, but it's widely believed to have been a strain of smallpox, ravaged the Roman Empire during the two decades or so beginning uh, in AD 165. It has been estimated that this pandemic's mortality rate over that period was anywhere from a quarter to a third of the empire's population. And that puts the current COVID uh, pandemic, which is horrible enough, but it puts it in a, in a different light, I think. We are not looking at one third to one, one quarter to one third of the world's population dying um, directly, at least as a result of this. Now, the impact of the Antonine Plague and its twin, the Cyprian Plague, which took place around AD 250 to 260 um, and was named for a bishop who gave a very colorful account of this disease in his sermons. The Antonine Plague was truly world historical in nature. On the eve of the Antonine Plague, the empire was a polytheistic pagan empire. Christianity was a minor cult with a membership, best estimates are of around 40,000 or 0.07% of the empire's population. Within a generation or so after the Cyprian Plague had subsided, it was a mostly Christian empire. By AD 300, Christians not only numbered over 7 million or 10% of the population, but they had made truly significant inroads into the commanding heights of Roman cultural, political, and economic uh, elites. After, while the conversion of uh, the Emperor Constantine doubtless accelerated this Christianizing process, after he ended the persecutions, the Christian population rose to over 30 million, constituting the majority of the population. The Antonine and Cyprian plagues together constitute the true inflection point. Before the Antonine plague, Christianity is a footnote to a footnote. After the Cyprian plague, um, it is well, well on its way to becoming the religion of the Roman Empire. Now, how did these two pandemics affect this transformation? Rodney Stark, in his seminal work entitled The Rise of Christianity, describes two mechanisms, and they're kind of closely related, but they're analytically quite distinct. First, he argues that these two pandemics dramatically accelerated what had been a gradual process of conversion to Christianity. Motivated by a Christian ethic of care and enabled by some very thick social and charitable networks around which the early church was organized, Christians provided a wildly disproportionate share of the medical treatment to victims of both the Antonine and Cyprian plagues. 
Although they did treat some pagans, most of this medical care was provided to fellow Christians. As a result, Christians both survived the ravages of these plagues at higher rates and developed higher levels of immunity more quickly. Now, seeing that many of their Christian compatriots were surviving what they thought as punishment of the gods and attributing this either to divine favor or to the benefits of the care being provided by Christians, either way, many pagans were drawn to the Christian social network and to the belief system that underpinned it. And this dynamic, of course, was amplified um, by the fact uh, that their own social networks were breaking down due to the disease which left many pagans at sea. They simply didn't know that their priests were running to the hills. Uh, nobody was looking after them in the way that the Christians were looking after their own. Uh, they were at sea and many of them turned to, uh, to Christianity. And if you add to this, the fact that tending to, the, to sick pagans afforded Christians really unprecedented opportunities to evangelize, and it really should come as no surprise that the number of converts to Christianity soared during these pandemics. Secondly, so that's there's there are more and more conversions as pagans look to what's going on in the Christian world and say, I want some of that action. That's way better than what my pagan priests and my pagan belief system are providing. It's a, it's a rational wager, in other words. Secondly, though, Stark argues in his book that plagues had the effect of opening a substantial gap in the mortality and birth rates of Christians and pagans, which further increased over time the ratio of Christians to pagans. Pagans were dying much more quickly um, uh, than Christians, and that, of course, had a knock-on effect in terms of their birth rates down the road. While this disease was effectively incurable, rudimentary palliative care, the provision of food and water, for example, could help those temporarily too weak to care for themselves to recover. The empire's Christian communities provided this sort of palliative care. Pagan Romans, however, opted instead either to flee outbreaks of the plague or to self-isolate in the hope of being spared infection. Does that sound familiar? As a result, Christians had a much lower mortality rate than their pagan neighbors. Moreover, because these two plagues disproportionately affected young and pregnant women, this lower mortality rate translated into a much higher, or at least significantly higher, birth rate. Now, the net effect of these two pandemics then was to put an essentially pagan empire on track to become a majority Christian empire over the course of about a century. And that Christian empire morphed over time into the medieval West, and then into the early modern West, and finally into the West as it exists today. So that's the Antonine Plague and, the, and its, its twin, the Cyprian Plague. Um, it gave us the Christian West. Next, I'd like to talk a little bit about Justinian's Plague. Um, that plague, named after the Roman emperor who reigned uh, from AD 527 to 565, arrived in Constantinople, then the capital of the Roman Empire. Some people refer to it as Byzantium, but the people who actually lived there still thought of it as Rome. In any case, it arrived in Constantinople about the year 542. Almost a year after the disease made its first appearance in the empire's outer provinces. And it continued to wash over the Mediterranean world in waves for about another 225 years. Nobody knows why, nobody knows how, but it finally disappeared 
in about the year 755. Now, although revisionist accounts dispute almost every element of the settled account of the plague, the generally accepted view is that it was the bubonic plague. Ircinia pestis is the Latin title for it even today. Uh, there's general agreement too that its distant origins probably lay in China, that its proximate point of origin was in the Nile on the Nile River as it emptied into the Mediterranean, and that it spread quickly from Egypt along the trade routes and the military supply routes that crisscrossed the empire and connected it to the lands beyond. Ultimately, the plague, Justinian's plague, afflicted the entire Roman world, both the empire and in various ways and to varying degrees, its immediate peripheries as well. There's also a general agreement that somewhere between 25 and 50% of the population of the empire died as a result of this pandemic. Again, I would draw your attention to the stark contrast uh, between the fatality rates of COVID and the fatality rates of this outbreak of bubonic plague. 25 to 50% of the population of the Roman Empire at that point in its history totaled somewhere between 25 and 100 million people. Now, among the first order knock-on effects of this culling of the population, if I can refer to it that way, there were two that were particularly consequential. First, the loss of so many productive lives had a crippling impact on the economy, as we can well imagine today. Right? We have nowhere near those fatality rates, and yet we, the COVID has had a crippling impact on the economy. And second, this near collapse of the empire's economic base triggered a catastrophic financial crisis of the imperial state. If goods and services weren't being produced, there was nothing to tax. And nothing to tax meant that the imperial coffers emptied very quickly. And remind everybody that this is an era before uh, it was easy for states to borrow trillions of uh, dollars uh, as we do uh, in this country today. Now, taken together, these two developments had the effect of fatally sapping the military strength of the empire. Lacking funds, the Romans were unable to recruit or retain troops. And lacking bodies, the Romans were simply unable to replace troops lost through combat or other forms of attrition, including the disease itself. And the convergence of these developments, coupled with uh, a general plague-induced, I'm gonna call it cultural enervation, I'll also call it eschatological resignation, they thought the world was coming to an end and it really sapped their will in all sorts of ways. And this resulted in a diminished ability to fight the empire's enemies or even to bribe the empire's enemies. And it was this fiscal military crisis that ultimately brought the era of Western antiquity to a decisive end. The ancient world centered on Rome as a trans-Mediterranean world order is about to end because of the plague. And here's how it happened. Before the outbreak of the pandemic, uh, Emperor Justinian had been conducting a series of mostly successful military campaigns to reunify a Roman empire that had been uh, partly overrun by uh, waves of militarized migration. These are the so-called barbarian invasions uh, from beyond its borders. With its debilitating effects on Roman finances and military power, the plague brought all of that to an end, mainly because the black rat that carried the disease had not yet reached Northern Europe. The barbarians, the Germanic peoples who had um, overrun 
those but what is now Western Europe, uh, simply proved less susceptible to the disease than the peoples of the East. And as such, and because of that, they retained their military potential, just as the empire was seeing its warfighting capacity severely diminished. And the results were predictable. The Goths in Italy and the Vandals at Carthage um, reversed Justinian's successes and irreversibly severed most of Western Christendom from the empire. Let me put it as bluntly as I can. Western Europe leaves the Roman Empire and all that's left is a rump, a remnant, a rather large one and still quite powerful. Um, but the Roman Empire as it, has, as it had been was no more. Something else entirely was going on on the empire's Eastern frontier where the forces of the Sasanian Persian Empire proved every bit as susceptible to the plague of those of Rome. Now, just to refresh everybody's memory, uh, the Roman Empire and the Persian Empire, the Sasanian Empire had been engaged in a sometimes hot, often cold war for decades. And they were exhausted, but there was, they had fought each other to a stalemate. And they had also contained in the process of fighting each other to a stalemate, they had contained a new power which was emerging in the Arabian Peninsula. And this was um, uh, Islam, which had been born around this time and was beginning to expand, but had bumped up against these two empires, both of which handily contained it. But that was about to change. Within a few years, of the end of the Roman Sasanian War of 602 to 628, the forces of the Islamic Rashidun Caliphate burst out of the Arabian Peninsula, swiftly conquering the entire Sasanian Empire, the entire Persian Empire fell, and stripping the Roman Empire of its vast territories in what is now the Middle East, uh, the Caucasus, Egypt, North Africa. As a result, the Roman Empire was reduced to a rump territorial core consisting of Anatolia, today's Turkey, and a few islands and footholds in the Balkans and Italy. In the aftermath of, just, of the Justinian plague then, the basic contours of the medieval world, as we've come to know and love it as students of that world, were established. Before the plague, the Roman world had been a Mediterranean world. The Roman Empire, a Mediterranean superstate, and Greco-Roman culture, an artifact of the Mediterranean's great cities. The plague-induced defeats suffered by the empire on both its eastern and western frontiers changed all this. In place of the pre-pandemic Mediterranean world with its unified ec economic, political, religious, and cultural structures, there emerged three largely disarticulated and increasingly dissimilar civilizations. An Islamic one in the eastern and southern Mediterranean basin a Greek one in what we would now call Byzantium, basically bits and pieces of uh, Greece, today's Greece and Turkey, and a European one in the Western part of Christendom. And it was this new European world order that provided the civilizational container within which what we have now come to think of as the medieval world would evolve. And what did this new European medieval order look like? Well, most fundamentally, it was shaped by a religious sensibility that was itself molded by the experience of the plague. The level of anxiety, eschatological anxiety, anxieties about the end times created by the pandemic within the empire simply cannot be overstated. Not surprisingly, given the casualty figures, uh, the lethality rates, as we would now say, 
uh, of this particular disease. People were not only terrified by the unprecedented and apparently random lethality of the disease, they feared that it might actually portend the end, uh, the end of the world. In turn, this anxiety inclined people to turn to the established religion, which is now Christianity, which they hoped would both make meaningful the horrors of the plague and mitigate those horrors. At one level, this plague-induced religiosity gave rise to works of public piety as people tried to buy off God. So, for example, the emperor ordered the construction of the Hagia Sophia Cathedral in Constantinople, which was then subsequently turned into a mosque and then a museum and now is a mosque again. On another, it gave rise to new forms of popular piety. Uh, Catholics, Catholic devotions to the Virgin Mary were born out of this, this plague. That hadn't been the case so much before, but it certainly became a defining characteristic of both, of both Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, and uh, Roman Catholic Christianity. And of course, it birthed the Christian monastic movement, which was itself a religiously inflected effort to find a way to escape the social and cultural devastation visited by the pandemic upon Christendom. Before the plague, of course, the Roman world had been Christian. That was established in that previous um, pandemic. But after the Justinian plague, it was Christian in a decidedly medieval way. Put slightly differently, the plague transformed Western Christianity, make it, making it both distinctively European and peculiarly medieval. Moreover, and still in a religious register, the plague-induced fracturing of the Western Empire left the institutional church as the only translocal structure of government in the post-Roman West. In the aftermath of its fracturing, no single powerful secular government emerged to replace the structures of imperial rule. There was, however, a central ecclesiastical power that spanned the Latin Christian world, the Catholic Church. Filling the power vacuum created by the empire's disintegration, the church quickly rose to become the dominant power in medieval Europe. As temporal kingdoms eventually started to gain power, they naturally clashed both on the battlefield of ideas and on the actual battlefield with the church and with each other for supreme authority, both within and across medieval kingdoms. More than anything else, it was this political dynamic that defined the geopolitics of medieval Europe the three-way clash between kingdoms, the empire, and the church. Within this emerging European regional order, the plague also laid the foundations for a new and distinctively medieval economic system, which we now call feudalism. It's a term which is in some disrepute, but is perfectly good shorthand. The Roman economy, of course, had been based on the institution of slavery. In such an economy, surplus is extracted direct, directly from slaves who are owned by a lord, and who work on his rural villa or manor. And while there were often uh, some free peasants in such a system, uh, and even some who were not slaves at all, but small landowners, the system as a whole was dependent on an abundant supply of slaves. That's how that empire made its money, generated its wealth. As the plague significantly diminished the supply of such labor between the fifth and the eighth centuries, however, a new economic system evolved. Faced with shortages of slave labor to work their fields, landowners began to grant plots of land called tenures 
to nominally free laborers. They weren't really all that free, but nominally free. Uh, these are the serfs who are um, in some way definitive of the medieval era and certainly of its economic system. They got land which they could work and live on. They were nominally free. They were no longer slaves. Slavery effectively disappears from Europe at this point. It'll reemerge later, but it's gone at this point. And in exchange for the being granted this tenure of land, uh, the serfs owed their lords tithes. They owed the lord service in his fields, and they owed various other fees and taxes. And in exchange for all that, the Lord not only granted them tenure of, of a chunk of land, but provided some military protection for them and provided or administered at least some degree of justice, dispute resolution mechanisms, I guess, more than justice. And although serfs had no real status under the law, social custom and the competitive nature of the labor market in this post-plague environment really prevented excessive exploitation. They weren't worked to death. This agricultural production system, usually called manorialism, laid the foundations for the various forms of feudalism that were to later become the hallmark of medieval European life. And finally, with respect to Justinian's plague in any case, uh, the plague resulted in a three-way clash of civilizations involving Islam, the Rump Roman Empire, Byzantium as we often call it, and the kingdoms of Latin Christendom. Now, to be sure, these were not three hermetically sealed containers. People, goods, and ideas continue to move across these civilizational frontiers. But as the continuing Islamic conquests, the Latin Christian Crusades, and the occasional Byzantine effort to retake parts of the empire attest, neither were these three civilizations good neighbors. Fundamentally, they were geopolitical antagonists, and their geopolitical antagonisms really did large measure define the medieval era. And that brings us to the great transition, the Black Death of the Middle Ages. I mean that in two senses. It was the Black Death that happened during the Middle Ages, and it was the Black Death of this period that we know as the Middle Ages. The Black Death, the Great Mortality, the Great Pestilence, the bubonic plague pandemic that broke out in Europe in the year 1347 and that killed between one third and one half of the total European population of 80 million people goes by a variety of names. But whatever it's called, it's remembered in the Western world as the plague, the pandemic that to this very day shapes our definition of a lethal pandemic. And it's the pandemic against which all other pandemics are measured and typically found wanting. This was the big one. And yet, although it has seeped into our collective imagination, I dare say there's very few people uh, in the West who haven't at least heard of the Black Death, even if only via Monty Python. Um, and despite all that though, uh, I, there is not a full appreciation of the way in which the Black Death profoundly shaped political, economic, and cultural structures in the West. And this, when you think about it, is somewhat odd. For the great mortality changed everything. Before the Ersinia pestis bacterium arrived in 1347 and then spread throughout Latin Christendom, what is now called Western Europe was a feudal society, as we've just discussed, 
organized economically around manorialism and politically around feudal networks of lord and vassal relations. By the time the pandemic had burned itself out in the early 1350s, that world was on its deathbed. And in its place was emerging a new world, a world of free labor, accelerated technological innovation, and a rising middle class. Now, how, one might reasonably ask, uh, did this great transition happen? Armchair Marxists, and in fact, professional Marxists, generally argued that the advent of capitalist modernity was a function of the internal contradictions of the feudal mode of production. And others would have us believe that modernity, the modern era, was a byproduct of the recovery of classical ideas lost during the so-called Dark Ages. We know they weren't all that dark. But later introduced from the Islamic world. And still others attribute it to factors such as climate change, the fall of Constantinople, the Ref Reformation, the Columbian encounter, once upon a time called the discovery of the new world. These are all important factors conditioning the historical transition from the Middle Ages to the early modern era. The simple truth, however, is that the transition to modernity was ultimately a product of something much simpler and something much more primordial the eternal dialectic between humanity on the one hand and germs on the other. Well, how did it happen? Or more specifically, how did this Ursinia pestis pandemic that ravaged Europe between 1347 and 1351 and then returned five times before the end of the century spark this transition from the feudal Middle Ages to capitalist modernity? Well, as is always the case, there is endless debate in uh, faculty common rooms and academic journals about the specifics. But three basic mechanisms seem to have played key roles in this transition. First, the plague triggered a terminal decline in the feudal or manorial mode of production that I just talked about having been ushered in by the plague of Justinian. Before the plague, as a result of minor climate changes and a few other developments, Europe had been overpopulated. And as a result, labor was cheap, serfs had little bargaining power, social mobility was low, and there was little incentive to increase productivity through technological innovation. But with the loss of 30 to 50% of the population, and the burden fell disproportionately on the poor, the serf class, this all began to change. The agrarian workforce was decimated, making peasant labor a relatively scarce commodity. This increased the survivor's bargaining position, uh, allowing them to negotiate both better compensation, they were actually demanding to be paid in cash, not in kind, uh, and a general weakening of their feudal obligations. In short, it became possible for peasants to negotiate a better deal to move about, to find a better deal, and ultimately to rise to a higher station in life. They became wealthier. And as you can imagine, the lordly class didn't appreciate that all that much, but that's for another day. Manorialism never recovered. With land plentiful, wages high, and fewer limits on social and geographical mobility, serfdom all but disappeared. By 1500, a new form of tenure called copyhold had replaced manorialism, at least in Western Europe. In this new economic system, lords and peasants negotiated mutually agreeable terms, typically involving the peasant being granted the legal right to occupy and use, if not yet own, the land 
and the Lord receiving a fixed annual payment in return. Second, and to some extent as a result of its depopulating impact, the Black Death encouraged both the widespread adoption of existing labor-saving technologies and practices and the development of new ones. In the agrarian economy, this resulted in the widespread adoption, for example, of the iron plow, the three-field crop rotation system, fertilization with manure, which nobody apparently had ever thought of before, they didn't need to, all of which significantly increased productivity. In the urban economy, it resulted in the development of, an entire, of entirely new labor-saving tools and machines. The need to conduct long-distance trade as efficiently as possible gave rise to efforts to produce bigger ships with smaller crews, because there were fewer people to, to man these vessels, leading to new shipbuilding technologies, including the three-masted sailing ship, and new business institutions, such as maritime insurance. The need to enhance productivity also underpinned the development and widespread adoption of firearms, as soldiers with firearms could fight more efficiently than those without. The Black Death even spurred the search for cheaper ways of reproducing books, previously copied laboriously and expensively by hand in monasteries, uh, a search that ultimately culminated in Johann Gutenberg's invention of the printing press in 1453, a truly momentous, truly momentous turning point in Western history. Finally, it was the Black Death, and not some internal contradictions of feudalism, that led to the emergence in Europe of a powerful bourgeois class, a middle class, and indeed laid the foundations for capitalism. Freedom from feudal obligations, greater wealth, and a desire to move up the social ladder inclined many peasants to leave the land altogether, move to towns, and engage in crafts and trades. The more successful ones became wealthy, some of them even rivaling the lordly class and they came to constitute a new middle class located between the peasantry and the aristocracy. Over time, this new class became the central node in a cash economy that increasingly overshadowed the agrarian economy out of which it had emerged. And significantly, as this class became wealthier and began, it began to rival the old landed nobility. With more disposable income, the newly rich could afford more of the luxury goods that could only be obtained from the East, silk um, being an important one. This stimulated long distance trade, accelerating the commercial revolution that had been underway since before the plague. One result of this was that new ideas or old ones that had been lost to Europe flowed from the Islamic world into Europe, stimulating a rise in learning. Another was that as this new middle class became wealthier, it began to patronize the arts and science and literature and philosophy. The result was an explosion of cultural and intellectual creativity, an explosion that we now refer to as the Renaissance. Apart from satisfying a curiosity about the past, which is why we are visiting this particular um, podcast, why should any of this matter to us today? Well, there are two reasons. First, the world we inhabit today is in large measure a product of these three pandemics. To be sure, plagues are not the only driver of human history, and to the extent that they do drive human history, there were other plagues that mattered as well, smallpox, smallpox in the New World being the most obvious example. But if you really want to understand the deep roots of the contemporary world, the world in which we actually live, 
you simply have no choice but to pay attention, close attention, to the interplay of humans and germs in these three historical cases. Second though, and perhaps more importantly, each of these historical plagues has something to teach us about the way pandemics, generically speaking, can bend the arc of history, either amplifying existing trends or initiating new ones. The Antonine Plague, for example, as I've just discussed, is instructive in that it illuminates the way in which disease can dissolve the ideological glue holding a society together creating an opportunity for new ideas and new ideologies to flourish and spread and ultimately prevail. In the Antonine case, this dynamic took the form of shattering the pagan religion that had legitimated and sustained the Roman imperial system since its birth, creating a space that was quickly filled by a radically new and different religion, Christianity. Today, COVID, one might argue, threatens to shatter the kind of neoliberal globalization, free trade, secular, democratic religion that underpins the Western world. A religion that a few short years ago had seemed well on its way to becoming both universal and uncontested. Francis Fukuyama's book, uh, The End of History, that now that the Cold War was over, it would just be a matter of Western style, liberal democracy and capitalism slowly seeping into every nook and cranny of the planet. That seems uh, a long, a long way off now in this uh, COVID world. The shine of globalism as a set of beliefs about the desirability of the untrammeled movement of goods and capital and people uh, has been fading for a few years now. But that trend is being accelerated by the rapid diffusion of COVID via many of the same routes traveled by goods and people in today's nearly borderless world. Fairly or not, the globalist and cosmopolitan fantasies that fueled the, fueled the creation of that world are now being blamed for the pandemic nature of what should have been nothing more than a very localized epidemic. The political blowback may well uh, drive a stake through the heart of this globalizing neoliberal liberal democratic project, a project that I remind people had nearly succeeded in the aftermath of the Cold War. Similarly, COVID may well shatter our faith in a liberal democracy, creating a space within which other, from my perspective at least, far less desirable ideologies will first evolve and then metastasize. The bumbling, near incompetent efforts of many of the open societies of the West to come to grips with the virus in the opening stages of the pandemic have been judged disastrous, both by the citizens of the West and by others. The efforts of the world surveillance states to contain the spread of the virus, on the other hand, have generally been judged successful. And this is true whether the surveillance state in question is obviously autocratic like the People's Republic of China or nominally democratic like South Korea. If health security proves to be more attractive to people than political liberty, and that does seem to be one of the lessons of history, then it seems reasonable that going forward, people will be attracted to the autocratic surveillance state model uh, rather than uh, the kind of democratic liberal model. The parallels between this and the choice of Christianity over paganism are perhaps obvious. Second, the plague of Justinian teaches us that pandemics can induce or accelerate massive geopolitical or strategic shifts. In the case of Justinian's plague, the pandemic-induced enervation or weakening of Roman society coupled with the accompanying economic downturn and fiscal military crisis, 
created the conditions of possibility for the Islamic outbreak from the Arabian Peninsula. This was a true historical turning point, one leading to the creation of a new civilization, initially encompassing all of what is now the Middle East, North Africa, Spain, um, and the lands of the defeated uh, Persian Empire as far as the Caucasus. In a similar fashion, COVID may be accelerating an already ongoing shift in the balance of power between the US and China. Since the end of the Second World War, American global leadership has largely depended upon its preponderance in hard and soft power. On its enormous wealth and military might, on the one hand, and the legitimacy that flows from the United States domestic system of governance, its provision of global public goods, the ability and willingness of it to lead in times of global crisis, those intangibles, on the other. Now, while the hard power implications of the COVID pandemic remain uncertain, the same cannot be said of the pandemic's effects on American soft power. Washington failed to lead a global response to the pandemic, largely as a result of both incompetence and a growing self-centeredness. Always having an eye for the main chance, Chinese leader Xi Jinping quickly moved to fill the resulting vacuum. And by March 2020, and ever since, Beijing has been vigorously promoting the Chinese approach to combating the virus, criticizing America's failure to deal with the virus or to lead the international response, response and even shamelessly blaming the US for starting the pandemic, uh, all the while providing material assistance, masks, rep respirators, ventilators, and medicine to other countries as part of its medical Silk Road initiative. While the jury is still out, some have likened Beijing's response to the early stages of the pandemic, for example, to the Soviet Union's response to Chernobyl or even to Tiananmen uh, in 1989. Despite those voices, um, there's maybe something of a consensus evolving that the combination of America's failure to lead and China's relative success at taking up the slack may well be accelerating China's rise to a position of global leadership. Again, the parallels this time to the plague of Justinian, are hard to miss. Finally, the case of the Black Death powerfully illuminates the way pandemics can amplify and accelerate already ongoing economic transformations. In the medieval era, the plague accelerated changes already underway in European society, changes that eventually culminated in the end of feudalism and the birth of capitalism. Today, the a pandemic is once again fundamentally transforming the way societies create and distribute wealth. Perhaps most tangibly, the plague is accelerating the unraveling of long-established patterns and practices of work that have been underway uh, for a decade or so now, but are really taking off. Now that it is proven feasible, we're likely to see more office staff working from home, even after COVID is gone. And as artificial intelligence and robotization continues to evolve, this is likely to be true even of the most manual of manufacturing and craft industries. This could in turn lead to firms deciding to renounce the expense of leasing office and factory space entirely, instead allowing all employees to work remotely with perhaps just a few in-person meetings per year. As a result, workers no longer need to remain within commuting distance of the office or the factory or the warehouse, but could live in a more convenient, desirable or inexpensive place. Managerial oversight, the whole reason we had factories in the first place, uh, would be maintained through digital means rather than through direct in-person supervision 
Should it continue, there is little, and there's little to suggest that it won't. The potential knock-on effects of this transformation are obvious. Intensified atomization of the workforce, accelerating deunionization, greater managerial surveillance and control of labor, deurbanization and re-ruralization as work is outsourced to cheaper labor li living in less expensive localities. Fewer businesses servicing the large concentrations of workers in massive office towers, a shift of workers from retail to warehousing and delivery, and reductions in mass transit as fewer workers living in the suburbs take buses and trains or cars to urban workplaces. In the aggregate, such changes would be as portentous as the shift from skilled manufacturing in the early 19th century to the so-called American system of semi-skilled machine manufacturing to the mass production techniques pioneered by Henry Ford in the early 20th. They would in fact constitute the final end of industrial revolution era working class, that class in which Marx and subsequent generations of Marxists invested so many revolutionary hopes, that class would be gone. Now, none of this is to argue that the still ongoing pandemic will have precisely these outcomes. My crystal ball is no better than anybody else's. And indeed, the longer term consequences of this pandemic, like all previous pandemics, are simply unknowable to those who must endure them. A person considering the consequences of the Antonine Plague in, say, 270 AD uh, could not have reliably predicted that a pagan empire would, within a few generations, become a Christian one. Nor could anyone have forecast in 1370 that many peasants would soon become wealthy and free, the core of a new middle class that would anchor a radically new capitalist economy. They just didn't have the perspective. Rather, the point I'm making in these closing comments is to make is this, that just as past plagues made the world we currently inhabit, so too this plague will make the world that our grandchildren and great-grandchildren will inhabit. Such, I would argue, is the irresistible logic of the true historical dialectic, the always unfolding conflict between germs and humans. And with that, I will close. I will thank all of you for listening to what has been a fairly lengthy peroration. I'll thank Nick for hosting me, and I hope I will be back in the not-too-distant future. Stay well. Oh.